Hello, everybody. Cody here. Just a disclaimer, we will be speaking frankly about paraphilias during this episode, which include attraction to minors, inanimate objects, and non-human animals, which many people find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Fred Berlin of Johns Hopkins about the types of paraphilias, the difference between paraphilias and paraphilic disorders, and how to guide people to treatment while protecting children and other vulnerable people from harm. Hope you'll find it as informative as we did. Dr. Berlin, was there anything you wanted to say before we get started in terms of disclaimers? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I'll, I'll just add that there, there aren't really... Uh two sides here. I mean, to the extent to which we're successful in treating someone with a paraphilia of the sort that might be a danger to others, not only have we helped that person, but we succeeded in preventing victimization. So I don't want to suggest that either one cares for victims or one cares for persons with paraphilias. I think one can do both, and often the goals are exactly the same. I would agree. And in fact, the way I've set these questions up, I hope you'll find that there's a lot of parallels where we can be priming people who may experience paraphilias and also priming people who might be targeted by people with paraphilias. And both of those are aiming to the common goal of preventing harm coming to individuals, as you pointed out. So, Dr. Berlin, are you aware that you have a Wikipedia entry? I think you might be one of a very few of my guests that have reached that level of... Yes, uh, I I hadn't known that for quite some time, and then another individual had informed me about that, so uh, I'm not sure quite how that gets out there, but uh, I I did learn that that that's the case. Uh, I don't know how the process works. I know anybody can edit Wikipedia, but it seems that articles tend to disappear if there's not some interest, so... Clearly, somebody thought your story needed to be out there, and I actually found it pretty useful in covering the basics of, of your background. Well, I appreciate that. And of course, it's always very flattering when uh, others take an interest in our work, so I'm appreciative of that. Just to briefly bring people up to speed on who you are, everyone, this is uh, Dr. Fred Berlin. He is a professor of psychiatry here at Johns Hopkins. You've been here since 1978. You're also the founder and director of the Sexual Disorders Clinic. Uh, You were the director from 1980 to 1992. And you founded the National Institute for the Study, Prevention, and Treatment of Sexual Trauma. Yes, that was really an extension of the original Hopkins Clinic, which was in the hospital uh, initially. And it's basically an outpatient clinic and deals predominantly with individuals who have paraphilic disorders. I want to make sure when you introduced me, because I didn't hear that entirely clearly, I'm I'm the uh, director of the Johns Hopkins Sex and Gender Clinic. I'm not quite clear if that's the way you'd identify me, but I don't want to misrepresent my credentials here. Of course. I had used the term sexual disorders clinic. I think that's what was in the language on the website. But yes, the sex and gender clinic is current nomenclature. Yeah, my current, well, I have several hats, but one that's probably most relevant to what we're discussing is that I am the director of the Johns Hopkins Sex and Gender Clinic. That's a clinic that exists within the hospital itself. Um, The National Institute, which you referred to, is basically an outpatient clinic that that I direct separate from the hospital. Okay, thank you for clearing that up. I also wanted to point out that from a forensic psychiatric standpoint, you were an expert witness in trials of Mark Dean Schwab and Jeffrey Dahmer. So I know... uh, Yes, I've uh, testified in, in a number of 
cases as an expert witness, perhaps the Dahmer one is probably the one that's gotten the most notoriety. Hopefully we'll loop around to some of the ideas that were useful to you in understanding those cases. I didn't necessarily plan to dive deep into that content, but certainly that speaks to the level of uh, respect you have in the field. How did you get involved with the psychiatric care of people with sexual and gender issues in the first place? I became involved in people who have a paraphilic disorder all the way back to the time when I was a psychiatric resident at Johns Hopkins. There was an individual who came into the hospital seeking treatment. He actually had this club with a chain on the end and had these fantasies and urges and ideas about striking his wife with this. He didn't want to do it, but he was afraid he was going to give in to it. And he turned out he would qualify for a diagnosis of sexual sadism. And I talked to numbers of people at that time and realized there was virtually nothing available within the field of psychiatry to treat these individuals. And so the beginning of my interest was a recognition of a clinical need, the fact there's patients out there and that that need was not being responded to. Um, as time developed, I also had an interest in uh, in educating and, and teaching others about what we were learning. And of course, as a faculty member at Hopkins, a number of research papers to try to educate a larger, a larger audience. Yeah, that must have been terrifying at that time. I mean, it seems there's a paucity of resources, relatively speaking, even today. One of the concerns that I have, and I mean, I'm very proud of what we have here at Johns Hopkins, but there's very few centers around the country that deal with paraphilic disorders, and I'm talking about the departments of psychiatry. We, we list the paraphilias as uh, psychiatric conditions. They have a major impact both upon the person who has the condition and in some cases upon others' family and others in the community, and yet we do very little, relatively speaking, to try to learn more about what causes these conditions, how to prevent them, how to treat them effectively, and so on. Yeah, and it sounds like the history of study of these conditions has been marked with a great deal of controversy. I don't pretend to be an expert on John Money, but it sounds like he did a lot of good work, but also was a force of personality that may not have been entirely to the positive for the field. Well, I don't want to get too much into personalities, but, you know, when we're talking about sex, when we're talking about the potential victimization, when we're talking about medications that affect sexual drive, these are just uh, issues that are tied to uh, very intense feelings that have to do with uh, religious and cultural beliefs. So uh, it's an area that is difficult to navigate without taking into account the, the powerful emotions that are often generated when discussing these matters. Certainly. And I know there's a stigma in mental illness in general, and this idea that having mental illness is somehow tied to some sort of moral failing. And as you said, with the strength of emotions and drives, as well as the cultural gravity afforded these topics, the repercussions of having one of these conditions has got to be, I mean, these have to be far and away among the most stigmatizing conditions one can have. Well, as, as you said, stigma is a major concern within the field of psychiatry. Um, I, I'm old enough to remember when a person who ran for vice president of the United States had to withdraw because he'd received ECT for depression. So they, these have been long-standing concerns, and, and it is the case that the stigma can be even worse when it comes to the the paraphilias. But uh, I think what a lot of folks don't understand is that none of us decide the nature of our own sexual makeup. And, and growing up, we discover the, the kinds of attractions that we're having. And if we're unfortunate enough to discover that we're having atypical attractions that can either cause harm to ourselves or, or others, that, that's a burden that we have to carry. And often one, because of the stigma, we're afraid to raise our hands and 
ask for help. If I may, one of the things that concerns me a great deal is how little we in the field do for prevention. We, we hear public service announcements frequently. If you have a drug problem or anorexia or depression, please come in. We want to help you. When's the last time we ever heard a public service announcement saying if you're a troubled adolescent, if you're having unusual sexual thoughts or feelings, if you're worried about losing control, please come in. We want to assist you. And, and yet we know that as I'm speaking, there are numbers of young men, for example, who are already privately aware of the fact that they're not attracted to sexually to people their own age. They may be attracted to very young children. They need and deserve help. And yet because of the stigma attached to it, we drive the problem underground and prevent them, in a sense, from seeking the very help that might not only assist them, but that might make the community a much safer place. Yeah, you make a very good point. There's next to no surveillance within psychiatry. We ask a lot of screening questions in the emergency department, for example, but there's really nothing. I mean, it would take 30 seconds to ask someone if they've had thoughts of that nature, and nothing of that kind has ever really crossed my radar outside the context of the subspecialty experiences at places like the Sex and Gender Clinic at Johns Hopkins. These are important questions to ask. Now, they also have to be done very thoughtfully and, and sensitively. We, we don't want people to get the sense that we're somehow prying into very private aspects of their lives. On the other hand, uh, sometimes the private feelings that people are having can be a source of great distress. They, they may be having urges that are having a difficult time controlling. And so it's uh, essential that we as physicians make it clear that we would be interested in knowing about it if they're feeling distressed, if they're, they're worried about being in control, and that we have things that we can do to assist them if they're just willing to share and, and allow us the privilege of doing so. Before we get too far in the discussion, I'm hoping we can make sure that we define our terms. What is a paraphilia? Well, paraphilia is just a term, like any diagnosis, it's a shorthand way of conveying information. So when we use the term paraphilia, we're just talking about the fact that there's something qualitatively different about a person's sexual makeup. It might have to do with the kinds of behaviors that either do or do not arouse them sexually. For example, some individuals are extremely turned on. I'm talking about men by dressing and clothing of the opposite sex. For other men, that would be a tremendous turn off. But that would be one example of how a person could be very different from the norm in terms of the kind of behavior they crave, that they're repeatedly wanting to dress in female clothing because of the turn on that it is. We also differ regarding the kinds of partners that we either would or wouldn't find to be appealing in a sexual way. Most of us, for example, are not at all interested in prepubescent children. That would be quite a turn off the idea of doing that. And yet other people may not be attracted sexually to persons their own age and through no fault of their own have recurrent sexual cravings towards children. So what we're really dealing with when we're talking about the paraphilias is that we're not all created equal when it comes to our sexual makeup. And some of us, because of the nature of our sexual makeup, may need psychiatric and, and mental health assistance. And I really appreciate the two examples you provided because that brings me really well to the next question I had. So you spoke about men who enjoy dressing in women's clothing and people who are interested in prepubescent children. Clearly, one of those would be something that could theoretically be practiced without hurting anyone. The other one, of course, not. What are the common paraphilias you see and what's your sense of the relative prevalence I guess I would say almost benign or things that could be practiced in a controlled way versus ones that are more inherently concerning to community safety. I'm going to answer your question, but let me first make an important distinction that's identified in the diagnostic manual, and that is the distinction between a paraphilia 
and a paraphilic disorder. Uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, a paraphilia refers to the fact that there's something qualitatively different about a person's sexual makeup. But just being different doesn't mean that a person has a disorder. And in order to consider a disorder, it either has to impair function or cause suffering. And that's pretty much true in, in medicine in general, though we often don't think about it. If uh, someone's different, they, let's say, have uh, one blue eye and one green eye, that's a difference, but it's not a disorder. On the other hand, if someone's different in a way where it impairs their functioning, where it causes them to suffer, then we as a physician want to learn more about what causes the problem, how to provide effective treatments, and so on. And so if someone has a paraphilia, they, for example, enjoy being tied up sexually by their partner, their partner enjoys tying them up, and neither one of them are, are suffering from it. They both enjoy it. Neither one of them are impaired in their ability to be in control of themselves. They can make sure it doesn't cross certain limits. Well, that's still a paraphilia. Most people don't recurrently want to engage in sex through bondage and things of that nature. But if it's not hurting anybody, it's consenting adults, then, then okay, it's a difference, but we don't consider it to be a disorder. But if these persons are worried they're going to lose control, that maybe this is going to escalate, they are going to hurt their partner, or if they're, they're suffering with this, they're having these kinds of desires, but it distresses them. For whatever reason, they don't want to act upon them. Then because they're distressed, then because they're suffering, uh, then because they're not in control, uh, we as physicians want to be able to intercede and, and be helpful. Now, that kind of addresses your question of, you know, where do paraphilias become dangerous? They can become dangerous when they are a disorder. In other words, they're a danger to the person himself or herself if they're very distressed and suffering with the kinds of fantasies and urges they're having. And they can be a danger to others if the person, for example, is attracted to children and not able to control those urges and fantasies and are going to, therefore, give in to those and hurt an innocent individual. I had a question from one of our Humanity Against Disease members. Do you have any sense of whether there's any evidence for paraphilias in the animal kingdom, or is this a uniquely human phenomenon? It's a fair question, but I, I don't know how we would know that in, in terms of the animal kingdom. Now, years ago, and thankfully this has changed, we used to say that homosexuality was a paraphilia, and now we recognize that it involves consenting adults, so that there's no more mental illness amongst people who are attracted to the same sex as people attracted to the opposite sex. So rightfully, we've removed that from being a paraphilia. And the reason I brought that up is that we certainly in animals can see homosexual behavior. It's, it's easy to be able to identify where an animal is relating sexually to the member of the, a member of the same sex as opposed to the opposite sex. It gets a little more tricky when we talk about some of the other paraphilias. For example, exhibitionism. There certainly are animals where part of the way in which they mate is that the male or the female exposes in a particular way. The peacock, for example, kind of exposes a way of attracting a partner. So there probably are some analogies, but because much of what we know about paraphilia is we can learn through having people introspect and describe their thoughts, their feelings, their desires to us, it becomes very difficult to extrapolate from that to animal behavior. I guess that makes a lot of sense, given that there's that black box in terms of understanding animal thoughts, as well as certainly their repertoire of behaviors would be more limited. I also had some questions about the history of how paraphilias have been dealt with. Do you have any sense of when mental health and healthcare in general started to become involved in the treatment of paraphilias? 
Well, sort of a, a recognition of the parafields would date all the way back to, I guess, around 1886. There was a neurologist, a psychiatrist, Richard Von Kraft, who, who in 1886 published a book that in English would be translated into sexual psychopathology, something of that sort. And, and that's where he first began to identify the various differences that exist in human sexual makeup, the tremendous spectrum and variability and so that's where it really all began. But even today, we still have a long way to go in terms of more research, better understanding some of the etiological factors, better understanding some of the phenomenology, the mental experiences, and certainly continuing to want to be able to do even better and better with the treatments that we have available. Since you've been practicing in this field, have you seen any changes in the culture at large with respect to the stigma of people with paraphilias and, and how they're treated both in the community setting and also with how they're brought into or encouraged through the healthcare system? Well, I think within the healthcare system, there's gradually been some improvements. I mean, you look through the diagnostic manuals, they've evolved over the years. We've moved more away from language that sometimes, particularly with conditions like pedophilia, tend to emphasize more the criminal side and have begun to look much more at trying to understand the the mental health side of this. Again, young people, in my judgment, seem to be much more open to talking about sexual issues, to, to talk about the, the difference in sexuality. So there have been some changes in, in so far as that's concerned. But th there's still, unfortunately, tremendous stigma. We still hear words like uh, pervert used in a very denigrating way. We still see shows on television, law and order type shows, where the worst thing you can say about someone is they're a pedophile. And, uh, you know, pedophilia is a term that was developed to uh, convey a certain amount of information uh, that enable we as physicians to diagnose, to do research, to treat people who are having the condition. It wasn't intended to be a demonizing pejorative. And so if we're trying to educate others to learn more about the paraphilias, to recognize that anyone through no fault of their own can be afflicted, that, that good people can have the problem and need help in the same way a good person can have a drug addiction problem and need help. This continued societal stigmatization, sometimes without us even thinking that that's what we're doing, in my judgment at least, doesn't help us move forward or become more educated and thoughtful on how to deal with these matters. One of the biggest changes I can see from my overview of this phenomenon would be the internet, given that it has increased availability of information, it's increased the ability of people to find their own subculture. What's your take on the role the internet has had in either helping or harming the plight of people with paraphilias and communities? Well, I think the internet is a two-edged sword, if I can put it that way. It's like atomic energy. You can use it to light up the world or you can use it to blow up the world. Mm -hmm. So there are situations on the internet where perhaps it's not serving a very helpful purpose. An example would be if there are people who are attracted to the children that they feel it's okay to act on those attractions and they would be supporting one another and certainly in terms of my beliefs that would that would be a very bad thing there are other groups on the internet though where people are recognizing that it's not their fault that they're different in their sexual makeup uh, they want to be able to have support from others who experience those differences they're committed to dealing with whatever differences they might have in a fully legal and responsible fashion and the internet may be may be helpful there. For example, there's a site on the internet called Virtuous Pedophiles, and the people who know absolutely nothing about this, one would wonder, well, that, how, how could that possibly be? And I think that's because people confuse pedophilia, which is a psychiatric condition having to do with the kinds of 
sexual urges and fantasies a person has, and they're confusing that with child molestation, which is a behavior that is not necessarily inevitable because a person is experiencing such attractions. And so this group I'm talking about, though, on the Internet, Virtuous Pedophiles, they want people who are attracted to children and not acting in those attractions to be able to feel good about themselves. They want to support one another. And perhaps most importantly, because some people, if they don't get the right help, aren't able to control themselves. They want to be able to encourage them to come forward and seek mental health assistance so that they don't destroy their own lives and don't cause problems in the lives of others. So, so the Internet can do some very dangerous things in some cases, but there's also some examples out there that, in my judgment, are extremely positive. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you brought up this organization, Virtuous Pedophiles, because I remember these discussions in Sex and Gender Clinic. And indeed, when you first mentioned that term, it's like it almost incites an instinctive moral outrage. And then you think through, like you said, exactly what they mean. I mean, certainly, if someone has those urges and goes their entire life without harming anybody, they deserve a little credit for that. I imagine that's got to be as difficult as having an addiction potential and not becoming addicted to substance of your choice. Yeah, and then if, I, if I may, this is, you know, we as physicians, we, we all have to learn to not allow our emotions, some of which can almost be instinctual, keep us from being objective and from helping our patients. I remember when I was a, an intern and on the a GI gastrointestinal service, you know, if somebody is sick and they throw up on you, your first instinct is that this is, it feels like a, a repulsive sort of thing, but you remind yourself, this is a sick person, you get past that and, and you reach out and you do what you need to do to the system. When it comes to the sex, I don't know if it's instinctual or what it is, but most of us presumably or hopefully are pretty comfortable with our own sexual makeup and interests, but often if someone's quite different from ourselves, we, we start to feel queasy or uncomfortable about that. And as physicians in particular, we have to learn not to, to be that way, that if someone is sharing with us that through no fault of their own, they have recurrent urges, a man to dress in female clothing, that they don't want to act on it, but they have recurrent urges of a sexual nature about children, what we need to do is, is get past our own feelings and look at it objectively. And this is a person particularly saying, I have these feelings, but please help me. I don't want to act upon them. We have a mandate and responsibility to do that and to assist them. And I would argue a moral obligation as well. You know, sometimes people wonder why we should care about the paraphilia as well. First of all, it, it can be someone in our family who develops one. Uh, we should care about it because if someone doesn't get the help they need to be in control, well, they, they can hurt someone that we, that we are uh, very fond of. And it also has to do with the values we instill in our children, that we need to teach our children, at least in my judgment, that just because someone's different from us doesn't mean that we should treat them in an unkind fashion. So I think there's just many, many issues here that need to be thought through in a very careful fashion. I think there's this idea that people are condemned for actions they haven't yet taken when you start throwing certain labels around. I have a, a question from Dr. Rossano. He was wondering if you thought that paraphilias were their own phenomenon or whether they were a subset of obsessions and compulsions and or part of the autism spectrum and what your take was on the interrelationship between those phenomena. That's an interesting question. I was actually on the DSM-3R subcommittee for the paraphilias, and we had a debate about whether this should be seen as part of the spectrum of OCD, of obsessive-compulsive disorder. I argued against that simply because they're often much like an obsession, like a compulsion, but they're eroticized 
obsessions and compulsions. And, and we understand that what's the driving force behind all of that is, is the sex drive itself. And so I, I didn't want to lose track of that. I didn't want the sort of the paraphilia to just be lumped together when there were important distinctions in terms of what is driving the behavior, the kinds of medications that might treat the behavior, and so on. But we are getting into the question of why these conditions in so many cases need treatment. And just to give a, an example, let, let's talk about exhibitionism, exhibitionistic disorder, which is one of the paraphilias. The cardinal mental characteristic of any paraphilic disorder is that the individual with it experiences intense, recurrent sexual fantasies and urges of a, of a particular or atypical case. In the case of exhibitionism, those fantasies and urges are about exposing to an unsuspecting stranger. Now, the point I want to make is any individual, any man presumably is capable of exposing to others, though the average man would be mortified at the thought of being asked to do so. Uh, clearly, the average man doesn't have intense, recurrent, sexually arousing fantasies and urges about exposing to the point where it may be a daily struggle not to do so. And that's really why some people need treatment, that this is not just a person of sound mind misbehaving when we come to exhibitionism or many of the other paraphilic disorders. This is a case where the sex drive, which recurrently wants to be satisfied, has become misdirected towards exhibitionistic behaviors, towards desires for children. And just as drug addicts and alcoholics often need treatment because their behaviors are driven by a powerful biologically based force, the same is true when it comes to the, the paraphilias. And that's why treatment, and one of the reasons why treatment is so often needed, that these, these are very driven behaviors. They're compulsive-like behaviors. It's not, as I said a moment ago, just a person of sound mind deciding for the heck of it that they're going to misbehave. Yeah, that distinction does seem important and highlighting just the intensity of these drives certainly seems to deserve attention in terms of its own category. Yes, and, you know, as human beings, we, we, we don't, on all issues, have equal amounts of choice. You know, I can decide with ease in the morning, do I put on the, the blue tie or the gray tie? But there's other things that it, it's much, much more difficult sometimes through willpower alone to control. We see patients we treat for anorexia nervosa where they have such a strong urge to, to exercise, such a strong urge to lose weight that if in the beginning of treatment we don't watch them continuously through their willpower alone, they're, they're often not able to control their behaviors. Again, people who are dependent on drugs or dependent on alcohol, it's not that they're just choosing in the way we might choose what to wear in the morning. They're driven and often through willpower alone, unless they get the proper treatment, uh, they're not consistently able to uh, resist the intensity of urges. They may resolve to, to do so, but in time, their resolve weakens and they're in need of professional assistance. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I think the infrastructure devoted to certain behavioral disorders like substance use speaks to the difficulty of sort of bootstrapping oneself out of these behavior loops. Yeah, just one other yeah. point historically. You know, we, we can often forget, but in the past, we used to just use very demeaning names for people who had drug problems, druggies, junkies. We used to say even worse things about alcoholics in some cases, particularly a woman who had a drinking problem. And then a wonderful woman, Betty Ford, identified herself as someone who had that issue. We kind of put a face onto it, and we recognize that good people can be struggling with difficult cravings and then need a professional assistance. When it comes to the, the paraphilias, we, we haven't yet 
put a name on it. We just have these caricatures, and we stigmatize by taking a look at these caricatures. But these are human beings. They have brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, people that care about them. And as with a person who may have problems with drugs or alcohol, they may simply be a very good person with a strong craving that, absent proper treatment, is difficult to control. And I think the average person has... Uh, far from appreciating that in most instances, and instead we just demean and, and stigmatize and, and drive the problem even further underground. Certainly. Shows like To Catch a Predator and a lot of uh, internet content of that nature, people have a tendency to revel in the idea of justice being served to people with these problems, and certainly no one wants children or other innocent people to be harmed by anyone, but I think it would be a relatively uncontroversial statement to say that if these behaviors could be prevented in the first place, then everybody wins. Well, exactly. I was actually interviewed by the host years ago of To Catch a Predator. I said to him, look, you know, you're seeing people from all walks of life, of all ages. You're, you're seeing teachers, you're seeing military people, you're seeing even physicians and so on that are being caught here. I said, and they're getting tackled, they're knocked down, and we're talking about justice being served. I said, maybe perhaps there ought to be more focus on how it is that these people who in every other aspect of their life seem to be such decent people, what, what is it that's driving them to behave in this manner, can we learn something from that? Can we learn how to prevent people from having these kinds of unhealthy desires? If they are having them, can we learn more about how to treat them? And so I, I thought there was a tremendous opportunity lost in those instances. Obviously, we all want justice. We're, we're not on opposite sides. We yeah. should care about victims and preventing victimization. But again, learning how people develop these desires that can lead to victimization in the first place is terribly important, how to prevent it, how to treat it. And so often that gets lost when we're talking about justice. And uh, I think that's very sad from my perspective. Yeah. I mean, it's something to, to bring in the 800-pound gorilla of the moment, this COVID epidemic. Prevention is much less glamorous than stopping something that's already in process. I mean, we don't know how many COVID-like epidemics or pandemics had sparked off and been nipped in the bud because they didn't make national news for months and months. But I should mention that the School of Public Health here at Hopkins is beginning to look at the problem of child sexual abuse, not only from the criminal justice perspective, we all want to support criminal justice initiatives, but also from the, the public health side of it, that, that this is also a public health problem. That hmm. We do need to learn more about etiology. We do need to learn more about prevention. We do need to learn more about how to effectively treat and, and intervene in ways that are not only going to help the person who experiences these attractions, but to, to prevent others from being victimized. So in so many other areas of psychiatry and medicine, it is less glamorous, but we are at least making that effort towards prevention. Mm -hmm. uh, it's only recently that we're just beginning to see the early stages of talking about prevention uh, when it comes to the paraphilias and to helping people who do have a paraphilia not engage in behaviors that, that also need to be prevented as well. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to hear that they're taking that approach because Certainly, with levels of sexual assault, for example, being as incredibly common as they are, the consequences when you look at what survivors have to go through to try and work through having experienced that, the burden on the criminal justice system of all these incarcerations, it would be so much better if we could target preventative well, measures appropriately. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And, you know, one of the things in our society is we sometimes have this tendency to think that uh, we can solve many problems either by one new law or by enforcing an older law more sternly. But, you know, if the only thing you do with someone, let's say, who has a 
pedophilic disorder is, is send them to prison. There's nothing about prison that can either punish away those attractions. There's nothing about prison that can enhance that person's capacity to be in better control of himself. And sooner or later, like it or not, most of these people are back out there in the community. So I think we have to look at this more in the way that we look at problems of alcoholism and, and drunk driving. We have to have laws, we have to have sanctions, we have to hold people responsible for their actions, and we have to hold ourselves responsible for our actions. But when a behavior is intimately tied to the presence of an identifiable mental disorder, be that alcoholism, drug addiction, a paraphilic disorder, we also have to have effective interventions, uh, treatment, learning more about cause, seeing what's going to be most effective. And right now, it seems that in so many instances, we're looking at it as though it's only a criminal justice problem when the etiology of the problem in many of these instances comes from the mental health perspective, something that's so often, sadly, being very much ignored, in my opinion. Yeah. So I had some basic questions to kind of frame this. Do you have a sense of when paraphilias emerge in the lifespan and when surveillance should begin for people? Sure. I mean, if we appreciate that we're just talking about a, a variant of, of human sexuality, it's like asking, when, when did I first discover what my sexual makeup is all about? When did I discover, in my case, that I'm heterosexual? When, when might some other uh, individual have discovered that they're homosexual? When might someone have discovered that they have urges to repeatedly dress in clothing of the opposite sex. It's a developmental process. It's not as though someone flips a, a switch and then things change. So, you know, early on, if any of us just introspect, uh, at a pretty young age, we became aware of what categories of persons we're going to be attracted to, whether it was the same sex, the opposite sex, both sexes, and so on. Uh, similarly, for the person with, let's say, pedophilia, they, they may at a young age have seen they were uh, beginning to feel attractions to folks there their own age and just assumed that they grow older, uh, that attraction would grow older with them. And then to, to their dismay, in many instances, uh, as they grow older, the attraction doesn't change. So, so the point is that most of us, by the time of early adolescence, have discovered the sorts of sexual desires and, and yearnings and so on that we will have, if we're fortunate enough to have the kind that can be expressed in a healthy and legal fashion, then life is going to be a lot easier. And if we're unfortunate enough to have the kinds that are attractions and urges and, and cravings that are going to be unhealthy or, or potentially even energize illegal behaviors, uh, then we're much more behind the eight ball and may be very much in need of appropriate mental health intervention. Suppose you had the ear of the entire country or the entire world and everyone was going to take your advice what would your advice be on when should we be discussing topics related to paraphilias with uh, children in terms of helping them to understand what these are all about and what they might be able to do if they discover these kinds of things happening in their own mental life in particular i was curious about I guess, what the relative role of parents, doctors, and schools would be, or if there's some other source that you would prefer. You know, I, I wouldn't want to be so presumptuous as to think that I can tell the world how they should uh, approach this, but we're, sure. we're really talking about the broader issue of sex education, and, and it can be very complex in our society because rightfully we want to pay respect to the different cultural and religious values that people have, those are so important to them in their lives. But sometimes we seem to approach this whole issue of sex, and certainly historically it's been this way, as though if we say nothing, that that's going to be the best possible education. And I don't know of any other 
area where we think saying nothing is the best way to educate our children. But it's tricky. There was a, a former Surgeon General of the United States, uh, that being the highest medical office in the land. Her name was Jocelyn Elders, and she actually lost her job. She lost that position uh, because she suggested that we should discuss with high school students, not younger kids, but high school students, issues such as, as masturbation. So you're really asking me about how providing sex education, which I believe is extremely important, and uh, how do we do that recognizing that there are various cultural and religious beliefs and that some people would prefer that they educate in their own way rather than doctors or teachers and others getting into that arena. Now, having said that, I do think we should not just assume that somehow if we say very little, our children are, are going to be okay. I, I think it is important and appropriate to whatever age they're at that children recognize that there are differences in sexual makeup, that children learn to respect others who are different. I think we're trying hard now in most sectors to say that if uh, someone's different because they're gay and as long as it's consenting behavior and people are old enough to give consent, that we want to respect people and not treat them as uh, second-class citizens because they're in some way different. We have to educate young people that if they're experiencing unhealthy or dangerous sexual urges and desires, that they need to be able to talk with somebody about it, even get professional assistance if if need be. And, and yet it's it's very, very delicate issue and uh, probably very difficult to get a consensus on how to do that. But if we, if we keep sweeping under the carpet, if we don't have these discussions, if we can't arrive at some sort of a consensus, uh, I think we're doing all of ourselves a, a tremendous disservice. Yeah, I would agree. I find it troubling, this idea that ignorance could in some sense be more effective. I mean, certainly there's common ground that I think all cultures could agree on, for example, as we've discussed before. I mean, no matter what else you think about people who engage in pedophilic behavior, I think everyone would agree that someone with pedophilic behavior not harming children is a good thing. Part of sex education needs to be instilling values. And I can just tell you my values are that it would be absolutely wrong for uh, people to engage in any kind of sexual act that is coercive, that doesn't involve the consent of another person. And certainly since children are not just miniature adults, they're too young to be able to give meaningful consent, it's wrong for any adult to become sexual with a child. So we should not hesitate to speak to our values and to educate others and to try and instill those values into them. But we also want to instill into our children uh, the fact that if somebody else's child is having a problem, if through no fault of their own, they are experiencing certain kinds of attractions, that perhaps we ought to reach out and understand and help that individual rather than simply stigmatize and scorn. So we can have our values, we should have our values, but one value is to try to understand and help people who are in need of assistance, not to simply call them names and because they're different, somehow stigmatize and, and, and feel that they're less worthy as, as a human being. That seems like a powerful position to take. It's a position that seemed really different when we first had some of these discussions, so I'm, I'm glad that we're able to bring this to a larger audience. One question, I do want to focus a lot on the support prevention and empowerment and trying to adopt these sorts of behaviors before they happen. But I know there was some curiosity among me and my colleagues to clarify, how do clinicians work with the legal system once a person has already acted on a paraphilia in a way that, that harms others? I've testified many times as an expert witness, reports that I write often get introduced to court. And the thing that, that we should keep in mind is that our job as a professionals, as physicians, as mental health workers, 
is to simply provide information to educate the trier of fact, the judge or a jury, so that when they make the difficult decision they have to make, it's as fully informed as possible. So I'm not there to, if I can put it this way, take take sides. I'm there to try to provide useful information. Now, some of the things we've talked about today can be useful to, to help the courts understand, for example, that if someone is attracted to children, that they're afflicted with these attractions. They're not having them because they somehow decided to be different. Uh, these are unwanted uh, urges and, and fantasies, and it's important that that be understood. Often it's important to educate the court that these are driven behaviors, similar to the way in which drug addiction and alcohol is driven, and also to educate them about the kinds of treatments that are available. And we have to work in conjunction and collaboration with the court. It's not just a matter of helping our patient, and if we are successful in helping our patient, we make the community safer, but also making sure that there are other safeguards in place. If I have a patient who is on probation and allowed to be in treatment with me, if they're non-compliant with treatment, I would notify their probation officer because they have a responsibility. I'm not going to call them being unresponsive to the expectations of, of society and the obligations they have. We write regular reports to probation officers. So again, there can be a close collaboration between the criminal justice system and the mental health and, and medical professions. And when it's working well, that's the the ideal. Uh, now, we hear the criticism of the hired gun who goes into court, and uh, I would like to believe that doesn't happen. When if it does, we should condemn it. But the real role of someone like us, someone who's an expert in a forensic setting, is to just provide information that might not otherwise be available to the the judge or the jury so that when they make their decision, they've been as fully informed as possible. Okay. Sort of related to this, I wanted to introduce our listeners to the idea of the Tarasoff decision. And that's this idea that physicians have a duty to warn if there's someone in the community who has been threatened by a patient. And that's one of the very few cases where doctor-patient confidentiality is not protected. And Dr. Berlin, I was wondering how the Tarasoff rule applies in cases where you have a patient with paraphilias who, let's say in this example, has not yet acted, but gives you reason to believe that someone might be targeted. How do you approach that? Yeah, we're talking here about future danger, and I'll also talk about mandatory reporting, which has to do with prior acts. But let me first address the question you've asked, which really has to do with future danger. Mm-hmm. And what we have in those situations is we have options. So if, for example, I've seen a patient who I have reason to believe poses a future danger to others, one option would be to, if I know a particular person, notify them about that. Uh, another option could be to notify the authorities, call the police. Uh, but another option is to document that I've obviated that danger. In other words, if, if I think a patient is a danger, I can bring them into the hospital for a period of time. And if by uh, the time they've successfully treated their inpatient stay, there's every reason to believe they're no longer a danger, then I've acted responsibly in terms of my obligations to the community. And so I've had situations like that where I've told someone, you're going to have to come in the hospital. I'm worried you're not in good control. You might be a risk to someone else. And I can't think of a time where I've taken that tact where an individual has refused. Now, there, there was a time where I actually saw an ad on a television where somebody had committed a rape. There was someone in our program who had a history of rape, and I I couldn't locate them at that moment. And I did go ahead and notify the authorities because I was concerned that perhaps this was someone who might be a danger. Fortunately, it turned out this had nothing to to do with him, and uh, I was relieved, and that he understood why it had to do what I had to do. But rarely, and I've been doing this for well over 30 years, have I had to 
report someone to the authorities in terms of feeling they posed a danger to others because in almost all instances we have a clinical option, including inpatient hospitalization, that can enable us to make sure that someone else is no longer in danger and we can provide the necessary interventions to have confidence that it will continue to be that way over the longer haul. Now, the other thing I did want to mention, that, that's about future dangers, mandatory reporting, because, as you know, when someone comes in and tells us they've sexually abused a child, we do have to report that. And I can tell you, I still have people that call me up without saying who they are and uh, ask whether or not we'd have to report them. And I tell them we would and suggest that before they tell me anything more, they might want to consult an attorney. And, of mm-hmm. course, there isn't a defense attorney in the world that's going to tell them to go ahead and come in and identify themselves and risk going to prison for many years. So I find it distressing that in those situations, a law that's intended to protect children is actually deterring an undetected person from coming in and getting the very help that might make the community safer. Another example I want to give that is I find uh, intriguing when it comes to mandatory reporting, in Maryland, we're not currently required to mandatory report if an individual comes in and tells us they've been viewing child pornography, which is a very serious crime. In the federal system, you can end up in prison for many years, a convicted felon on the sex offender registry, lose your voting rights, and so on. So it's a very serious crime, but we're not required to report that. And we've had numbers of individuals over the past few years coming either on their own or sometimes with the support of family to get some help, to help them resist these urges they're having to continue viewing that kind of pornography. We've assisted them in stopping and we've done it in a way where they can then get on with their lives, be a, a contributing member of society. In California right now, it is necessary for mental health professionals to report if somebody comes in. And so all that is doing is deterring individuals in that state from coming in and getting the help that they might need and simply driving the, the problem underground. And for the life of me, I can't see how that is doing either society or those individuals in need of treatment any kind of a of a good service. I can see that being a big problem because, as you said, if we treat this strictly as a criminal justice issue, we're doing next to nothing for prevention and really next to nothing for rehabilitation, it sounds like, if people go through the default course of prosecution and incarceration. Yeah, there's just tremendous disparity in our system. I mean, somebody can come in and tell us under the umbrella of, uh, you know, patient doctor confidentiality that they've cheated on their income tax or could even tell us they've committed an armed robbery and we're, uh, the mandate there is not to report it. And yet if someone comes in and says, I'm bouncing my child on my knee and I was rubbing their thigh, I don't even know if they realized I was doing it. I want some help. But we are mandated to report that. So I'm giving easy examples. I know yeah. it can often be much more complicated, but I'm just making the point of we have to have some sort of balance. We can't expect patients to open up and be entirely honest with us in seeking treatment if they're going to at the same time be afraid that instead of getting help, they're going to ruin their lives in, in the process. So I don't have simple answers, but I, the point I'm trying to make is we need to think about this very carefully and not just assume that, well, if we, if we went and reported someone who comes in and says they're looking at child pornography, that surely that must be a, a good thing because only some awful sort of a person could engage in those kinds of behaviors. That, that simply is not true.
it really seems like people's intrinsic visceral moral reactions are trumping the measured consideration of the effects of these sorts of policies. Well, that's, that's right. And that's why I think it's so important that, you know, we're training physicians to see these patients, to see them as real human beings. You know, I read in the paper myself, that, you know, somebody's arrested for child pornography and there's kind of this instinctual thing of, you know, oh my gosh, this is just awful. And it is. I mean, I'm suggesting that's a, a good thing. But then I've found in working this area, you know, that the, the wife of this person or the brother of this person or the father of this person is, knows them as a human being has a completely different perception. I, they'll say, and I think rightfully so in many cases, this is really a good person. I must have some kind of a problem. Can doctors or something you can please do to help? So when we dehumanize, when we just treat someone by stigmatizing them, it's a very different perception than we're dealing with the, the reality of it. And we have a history in our society of doing that. When I was young, the, the, if you're a communist, you're, you're an evil person. I lived through the, the McCarthy era, um, the, sort of the war on drugs, where we were taking young people who had a few ounces of marijuana and wanting to put them in jail for five or ten years because we just had this stigma and dehumanized and didn't see them as real people who in many cases would be deserving of help. And uh, I think we're, we're still certainly doing this today when it comes to many of the paraphilias. We all have this instinctual reaction. I have children, I have grandchildren. We all want to protect them, mm-hmm. but we don't necessarily protect them by thinking we can legislate the problems away. And we don't protect them by teaching it's okay to, to not care about someone who's afflicted with a paraphilic disorder and to not want to try to assist them. And again, I would emphasize every time we're successful in treating someone with pedophilia, to use that as an example, each case of successful treatment is also a success in preventing further victimization within the community. Absolutely. This emphasis on trying to better solve the problem through prevention and support, I kind of wanted to go through what we could recommend both for people who are at risk for being targeted and also for people who are at risk of engaging in these behaviors. If you'll humor me, I kind of have this parallel list drawn up. For people who are survivors or are at risk of being targeted or have been approached, what sorts of resources would you recommend for support? In terms of a person preventing themselves from being victimized, just a lot of common sense. You don't walk down the street in the middle of the night by yourself in an area where you have a reason to believe you might be in danger. But having said that, I just want to underline that no way whatsoever the fault of someone who becomes victimized. I don't want to give the sense that if they just would have done more of this, this, or that, that they they would have been okay. So we all need to take common sense uh, precautions, not uh, unnecessarily, without thinking it through, put ourselves in the situations of danger. But there's just a limit to how far one can go with that. And and I just, again, want to underline it. It's not the fault of a victim when they do get victimized. Now, when it comes to to treatment, one thing that has concerned me a little bit is that there are a lot of self-help groups out there for victims, and I think that's fine, just like AA has helped lots of people who have alcohol problems. But I'm not sure, uh, just I talked about, there's not as much professional treatment for folks with the paraphilias. I've had the sense there's often been a lack of professional treatment for those who've been victimized as well. Now, I, I could be wrong on that. I haven't done a systematic survey, but in in terms of people that I've spoken with who have been victimized, it's so often just been the self-help route and and not professional treatment, and and so I I think we might need to do more Hmm. along those lines as as well. I I may be wrong, but that's certainly my sense of it. In my experience coming through our general psychiatry program at, at Johns Hopkins, certainly people who are survivors of trauma, whether it be childhood or adulthood trauma, 
are often in need of a great deal of both psychotherapeutic and, uh, in many cases, pharmacologic therapy. So it would be alarming if that's the case that much of the help that they're getting is peer-to-peer. I mean, certainly I'm not denouncing the importance of support, but it wouldn't surprise me if those resources are limited and that we ought to be in some way intensifying the professional support that we're providing. Yeah, exactly. I I certainly think it's something we ought to think more about. I mean, it's terribly important that these folks get optimal treatment. And again, as I think through how we're training our psychiatric residents, mental health folks, it certainly might be worthwhile to include more about the problems uh, faced by people who have been victimized, how to deal with the trauma itself. And there's beginning to be a little bit more focus on that, how to deal with the comorbidities, the pressions that may exist, and and so on. It's, It's certainly worth taking a closer look at that in my judgment. What would your advice be for parents and community members, particularly with respect to protecting children? Are there any high-yield interventions in terms of just limiting their potential to be victimized, knowing, of course, that it's nobody's fault and that there's only so much one can do, as you've pointed out? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that it really comes down to education, accurate education, sort of to not either underplay or overplay, if I can use those terms, what's going on out there. And for example, the, the percentage of children who are being lured into the difficult situations because of a somewhat out there on the internet attempting to do that is exquisitely small. Now, having said that, we, we want to educate our kids to the dangers that can exist out there. We want to make sure that they're not handing out personal information to folks they don't know and, and so on. But that's not really the major problem out there. A lot of what the problem is on the internet now, and where we do have to educate our kids, both in terms of being victims and perpetrators, is the kind of cyber bullying that occurs. Yeah. Teenagers that, for example, have shared intimate pictures of themselves with boyfriends and the relationship ends and the boyfriend may threaten to, to put that picture out there on the Internet or people are sexting and they forget that once they put some images out there that they can, in a sense, go viral. So there's just so much education that needs to be done. And, and much of it is really teaching young people both not to do things that allow them to be victimized and also the importance of not doing things that are just outright wrong by potentially victimizing others. That, that's much more of the, the kinds of threats that exist on the internet right now hmm. than the notion that somebody is out there who's going to meet a 9, 10, 11-year-old child uh, by having contacted them uh, in, in, in that fashion. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And certainly the issue of cyberbullying is one that has come up on the podcast before. Just this idea that bullying could get to a place where it's inescapable is horrifying. And the internet, it's just, again, we talked a bit earlier, but it's, it's a whole new world out there, and some of it's like the old Wild West, where there's virtually no rules in place. Now, again, parents, in terms of prevention, I mean, there's some blockers they can put on if they're trying to keep their children from going to certain sites, but, you know, the reality is young people tend these days to know a lot more about the Internet and electronics than older people, so there's just a limit to how much can be done in those those ways. Probably it comes down to something as basic as that we all have to teach our children basic values and, and try to, to reinforce that as best we can in our ongoing relationships with our youngsters. With respect to persons who are at risk of engaging in these dangerous paraphilic behaviors who have a paraphilic disorder, what would your advice be to help someone who has recognized this in their nature to deter them from behaving in harmful ways? Advice is that they should you know, come in and get help, uh, and that is their responsibility. On the other hand, it's our responsibility to 
educate them to the fact that the help is out there. We touched upon this earlier. There are numbers of young people now, because this is when you discover the nature of your own sexual urges, desires, and, and so on, who are having frightening sexual desires. They're, they're worried about controlling themselves sexually, and, and yet uh, they don't know. The, the, the last thing they're going to do is raise their hand and ask for help, because the last thing they want is for others to find out about it. And, and you know, we've seen, now we've been talking about the paraphilias, and that's a, a huge issue, but, you know, so many people we see uh, who are having a difficult time integrating their sexual needs into an otherwise responsible and healthy and productive lifestyle. This, this is a big problem in our society. We've seen celebrities. We've seen all sorts of people where that's the case. And again, we can just condemn them, and we should certainly speak against behaviors that are proper. But we also should think a little bit more about the fact that maybe some of these people need help, and if they would have had access to help in a more timely fashion, a lot of harm could have been prevented. So I, I don't think this is some problem that is minor. Sex touches the lives of each and every one of us. It's a very powerful drive uh, for many people. Thankfully, they're able to deal with that in a healthy and fully responsible fashion. But there's still significant numbers of essentially decent people who are struggling with this. And we make fun, we ridicule, we stigmatize. We don't take seriously the idea that perhaps they just need some understanding and some assistance. Hmm. As you pointed out the importance of informing people about the availability of help, what would you say to primary care providers and other mental and general health care providers in terms of how would you encourage them to surveil for this sort of thing and try to sensitively open up these discussions? Yeah, I mean, it's terribly important for physicians and other health workers to be comfortable talking about sexual issues with patients. Now, again, it has to be done very carefully. We don't want to give the patient a sense that we're intruding or asking questions for the wrong reasons. I think sometimes, in, in terms of the question you asked about primary care providers, the easiest way is really to start out with some sort of a general office questionnaire, just as you're going to be asking about other kinds of issues. Let's say a psychiatrist might have a little questionnaire about a depression, about anxiety, maybe about have you been uh, hearing voices, things of that nature. There can also be you know, some questions that have you things well with you sexually? Are you able to be okay in the relationship with your partner? Are, are you having any kind of sexual feelings or desires that you feel might be unhealthy or problematic? Something where it's just kind of a question where it's clear why it's being asked, that it's being asked for medical reasons to open the door so that it doesn't look like to a patient when you're suddenly asking, I came in with this problem, why are you asking me about sex, that they don't get to think that you're up to something you shouldn't be up to. So it has to be done very carefully. It has to make, make clear to patients questions are being asked not for prurient reasons, but to be able to help you if there's something you need help with. But again, it, it shouldn't be overlooked. I mean, th these are things that because it can be so private and so embarrassing that patients may not volunteer if they're not asked and yet may be very relieved if they see that you're interested in pursuing the topic with them. So, hmm. you know, folks will find their own ways of doing it. They have to do it in a very sensitive fashion. But the answer is certainly not to leave the job undone. Yeah. In terms of people out in the community, have you encountered any outward signs or things that friends and family might look for that would be signs that someone could be grappling with a paraphilia that might prompt them to have a discussion? It's hard to know. I mean, usually families can be much more of a part of the solution than they are part of the problem, and often they don't recognize there's a problem until in some other ways it's been identified. But there are a few general guidelines. I mean, if somebody seems to be spending an inordinate amount of time on the 
computer and insisting on doing it in, in private where nobody else can see what they're up to. If somebody seems to be wanting to go out in the community and it's not clear where they're going or why they're gone for long periods of time. I bring up the time in the computer in a private setting because that's where people often look at pornography and then they can get into other kinds of unhealthy and even illegal acts on the internet. So that that can be a bit of a red flag. There's a lot of other reasons why people may do that that is perfectly benign. So I'm not saying that, that that's somehow diagnostic, but in, in terms of maybe wanting to wonder why someone's having to do that and raising some questions as a concerned family member, that could be a possibility. People that engage in voyeurism, one of the paraphilias, they're, they're often spending hours trying to look or even using electronics, trying to use a camera to take unsuspecting pictures of uh, somebody's legs or something of that sort. So I don't want to suggest that ahead of time that families are necessarily going to know. Certainly once the person is in treatment, they can be very much a part of supporting that effort. But the things that I just mentioned, where there's just a lot of unexplained private activity, to, to try to ask someone you care about, is everything okay? And let them know that you're, you're going to want to be helpful if there is an issue. That's probably the best advice I can, I can give at this point. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of those would be nonspecific, but certainly in combination could be concerning, especially if there was already a known... Yeah, exactly. And, and again, even in terms of victimization, you worry with the child seems to know much more at an early age than they should about sex. So, you know, that can be a concern. On the other hand, again, there are other ways in our society that kids learn that, or sometimes they, a child may fondle himself or herself with it being quite benign. So we have to use a lot of common sense or be sensitive, look for some signs, but don't, don't overreact at the same time. Okay. Do you refer friends and family of, of people with paraphilias to any particular sources of support, whether they're web resources or groups or anything of that nature? Yeah, at times in the past, we, we've actually had groups for family members, uh, for significant others. There's been quite a demand, actually. I felt bad because sometimes we just haven't provided because we just don't have the, the resources to be able to do that. Again, I think it's an area where there could be much gain from providing that service. It's another area of need that's being inadequately fulfilled. Now, having said that, when we have a patient in treatment, we're always very happy with their permission, and we're usually going to have that to talk with the family, to educate the family as to what this is all about, to talk with the family about what they can do to be supportive, what they can look for in, in particular situations. So right now with our patients, we try to make ourselves available to concern significant others and family members, but uh, there's much more that can be done in that area as well, just as we've been talking, there's much more that can be done with respect to treating and educating and doing more research with the paraphilias themselves. In addition to seeking health care and resources like the uh, Virtuous Pedophiles organization that you spoke about, are there any other resources that you would recommend persons with paraphilias go for a little bit more information if they're just trying to wrap their head around the problem and what help is available? Without being self-serving, I mean, they, they can certainly contact us and we can try to provide some resources to them. There are a couple of a group do have a, a good deal of literature available to try to, to help folks. So again, if they get in touch with me, I, I can try to make them more aware of, of some of the resources. There are some resources out there. Okay. Well, I might send some uh, people your way through the website as this episode launches. There's a place called the Safer Society. I think they can be Googled. I can probably just get them through doing that. And they they have a, a lot of literature about these, these kinds of issues. So it's a safer society group, organization. Okay, excellent. I'll make sure that links to that are available for our listeners as well. 
one of the issues we've discussed here and in the past is that the boots on the ground are spread thin for addressing this problem. If healthcare provider somewhere outside of Baltimore was approached by a patient who wanted help with a paraphilic disorder, what would your advice be for that healthcare provider, especially if they were physically remote and there was some sort of barrier to directly referring to a subspecialty place like this? This is a significant problem. Where possible, we're certainly glad to have referrals. In other words, we would do the evaluation where someone might come in from out of town for the one-time assessment, and then we can make more specific recommendations and provide more support locally for for follow-up. But otherwise, as it would be with any other area, to get the appropriate consultation. Certainly consult a, a clinic or a facility that has the requisite expertise. Certainly here at Hopkins, we're glad to be consulted either for an initial evaluation or simply to, to get advice about a particular patient. One of the things I'm very pleased about is we've now been training significant numbers of residents uh, who have graduated, gone on to other locations, so they're available to provide treatment. I often, I shouldn't say often, but periodically I get calls from them either wanting to make a referral or asking for advice about how to deal with a particular patient. So as we continue to educate more psychiatric residents and other mental health professionals about these issues, and then they go out and spread out in the various parts of the country, I think more will be available. But it is a very specialized area. We're talking about medications that lower sexual drive. We have to do that in a very safe way in terms of the patient's overall health. So it is going to be important to consult someone who specializes in the area if you're going to try to provide treatment to these folks. I know this idea of using Lupron to suppress sex drive is one of the major pieces of our pharmacologic armamentarium. And I was browsing the literature in anticipation of this a little bit. I saw that as recently as 2019, it looks like we're at one of our first papers really comparing Lupron alongside CBT with respect to the outcome variable of recidivism of abusive behaviors. Yeah, I would make a point, though, and I absolutely support uh, comparison research. And, and of course, it's very difficult to do a double-blind study where we withhold a medicine that you think makes someone safer and then an innocent person gets victimized. So we we can't just do pure science here. But I do want to make the point when it comes to uh, Lupron, which substantially lowers testosterone, that there's a huge volume of literature out there showing the relationship between substantially lowered levels of testosterone and sexually motivated behaviors. It's true in in animals and in human beings, and most specifically in human beings who've had a history of committing sexual offenses. So we don't necessarily need a double-blind study for that. Some folks won the Nobel Prize for identifying and synthesizing testosterone. We know in castrated animals, although there can be exceptions, the, the frequency of sexually motivated behavior is dramatically reduced. We know from human beings where the testes have had to be removed for conditions such as testicular cancer. There's a tremendous decrease in sexual interest that can subsequently be restored by providing testosterone. So I, I do think that we really have a good science to back up the idea of suppressing sexual drive as a way of facilitating better control for people who have paraphilias. Now, what we don't know a lot about, that's kind of the intensity dimension of sexual drive, and that's very important. Eventually, if we learn more about the biology that underlies qualitative differences in sexual makeup, uh, then perhaps we could eliminate paraphilic sexual cravings, replace them with healthier kinds of sexual desires, and that would actually be a 
a cure. But, uh, you know, we're nowhere near that at this stage of our history. But the fact that we can lower the intensity of the urges that energize the, the problematic behaviors, that certainly, I think, is, is very important from the scientific and, and medical perspective and certainly very important in, in helping people to live more safely in the community. Yeah, that would be a holy grail of sorts to be able to, to recalibrate people's drives qualitatively, as you say. Yeah, and, and we've done, by the way, some research on the intensity dimension. We actually did some PET scans that showed that one of the many things that happens during sexual arousal is a release of internally produced opiates, uh, hmm. endorphins. And so, you know, some people feel like they're, they're almost addicted to sex, and there, there may be a biological basis for why some people are so driven. They may be releasing more of these internally produced opiates when they get sexy aroused, or perhaps their receptors are more sensitive uh, to them. And so in terms of future research, the whole area of mind-brain is, is, to me, an extremely exciting one, and, and trying to learn more about the biology that underlies qualitative differences in sexual makeup as a way of trying to perhaps uh, do better in, in addressing the paraphilias in the future, I think for any young scientist or researcher is, is an extremely exciting prospect. Yeah, and it, I mean, it seems like the field of research in this area has innumerable opportunities given all the things we don't know. I find it interesting in psychiatry how much, you know, we've moved along the lines of what we used to just think of as bad behavior having a clear relationship to the psychiatric uh, issues. You know, one of the, the basic sins, uh, seven cardinal sins at one time was gluttony. Now we, we look at morbid obesity as a medical problem. Uh, many, many people that we, that we used to think of as simply uh, lazy or unmotivated, we recognize are clinically depressed. We used to think that that was simply something that was related to being in a depressing life circumstance. And now we recognize many people are depressed because there's something different about the chemistry of their brain. I think certainly historically, when we look at some of the behaviors related to paraphilias, we thought they were simply moral weaknesses. And in some cases, they may be. We have to acknowledge that. But I think in many cases, we're recognizing now that they're, they're really occurring in relationship to identifiable psychiatric conditions, that is the, the paraphilias, and that these are very intimately tied to biology. Certainly, the energy behind uh, enacting these behaviors is the sex drive itself. So I find it intriguing how the more we've learned, we still have our moral values. We absolutely have to have them, but we're beginning to appreciate much more the role of, of biology, of science, and medicine, and how that needs to be considered as well in addressing these, these very human problems. As far as the main discussion goes, are you hopeful for the future of clinical care for this population? Well, you know, I'm an optimist by, by nature, and I'm sure the, the truth ultimately will prevail. I, I don't think there's any doubt that people don't decide to have these kinds of sexual urges and, and fantasies. And it's clear that they discover that they don't decide to, to somehow program their mind to put them there. I, I don't think there's any doubt that in many cases these, are, these behaviors are energized by a powerful biological force in the same way that occurs with drug addiction and alcoholism. I think it's clear that we're beginning to appreciate that we have to reach out and do more with prevention. I think with medications that lower sexual drive, we have uh, available some interventions now that can help the individual with a paraphilia and, and where it's a dangerous paraphilia makes society safer. So I have no doubt that history will catch up with us, if I can put it that way, and that these will be seen as legitimate psychiatric disorders that deserve treatment in the same way as any other psychiatric or medical condition. The, the real question is, you know, at what pace will we accomplish this? You know, when I was a, 
a kid, and in my judgment, very wrongfully, we listed homosexuality as, a, first of all, as a crime, and, and secondly, from the medical perspective, as what we now call a paraphilia, and it took far too long for that to change, both within the medical profession, in my opinion, and also with respect to society. But it did change, and I think we have a better society, in my opinion, as a result of it. I have no doubt that we're going to recognize in time that, that good people can be afflicted with a paraphilic disorder. They are good people. They deserve help. We have effective treatments. But it often takes much longer than one would have hoped when it comes to these matters. And so will we get there? Yes. How long will it take to get there? That, that I can't say with any degree of confidence. Of course. Yeah. And it is interesting, I mean, even in my lifetime, seeing how much cultural change has happened, not to lump the LGBTQ community in with these sorts of behaviors, but just seeing our cultural attitudes change on topics related yeah, to sex uh, and gender. Uh, absolutely. In my opinion, we shouldn't change our mind about the fact that we should not allow adults to be sexual with children. But what we do need to change is recognizing that I didn't decide to be heterosexual and somebody else didn't decide to be homosexual. Nobody decides to have a pedophilic sexual makeup and that we have to understand that these can be good people that deserve help. So, But, but in terms of your question of where we're headed, I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that uh, through the sex and gender clinic at Johns Hopkins, where we're teaching medical students, future physicians, we're teaching residents, future psychiatrists. So I think we are doing our part, and I'm very pleased about that, to make the changes that I think are important and to try to make the future in this area be a much more promising one. Excellent. Certainly, we hope to do our own small part by getting the, the word out and having this discussion on a larger scale with our listeners. Uh, Dr. Berlin, I had some questions from Dr. Hall about Lupron specifically. These are a little bit more nuts and bolts and more for our clinical listeners, but I wonder if you'd be willing to entertain these as well for our benefit. Sure. So I kind of want to start with what is uh, Lupron or Depo-Lupron? Well, first of all, I'm glad you said Depo-Lupron because I think most physicians know, but just to highlight it, Depo-Lupron is a depot medication, which means that when it's injected, it binds to muscle. It's deposited in muscle and then gradually comes out of muscle into the bloodstream during the interval between injections. Unlike penicillin, which is not a depot medicine, you inject it in muscle, it comes out, and three days later you can't even detect it being there. So it's an injection that's given once a month, but the patient, in effect, is receiving the medication as it comes out of muscle into the bloodstream during the interval between those injections. What Lupron does, it's actually an agonist, which initially causes a transient increase in testosterone, and that's why we give another medicine. I can talk about that in a moment to protect against that transient surge. But when given monthly, ultimately it causes a marked decrease in testosterone, and that will be sustained over time. And we know from a great deal of scientific research that's been done that lowering testosterone substantially, as will be done with adequate doses of Depo-Lupron, will very much lower the motivation to engage in sexual behavior. And when it comes to dangerous paraphilias, that's exactly what we want. And the way we present it to a patient, by the way, is that you were trying to diet and I could lower your appetite. It would make it easier to diet, but not impossible to eat. And so the idea in getting the sexual urges down to a very low level is that you control your urges instead of them controlling you. But if you're in a situation where it's appropriate to have sex with a consenting adult, it's not necessarily going to be difficult to engage in that kind of activity. And in fact, because Viagra is not an aphrodisiac, it doesn't increase sexual drive. 
in an appropriate situation, someone on Lupron, if they were having erectile dysfunction, could actually take Viagra in order to be able to perform under those circumstances. Hmm. Although it's not the ideal qualitative solution we had earlier discussed, it sounds like it does very effectively mitigate the drive to engage in the harmful behaviors. That's correct. And again, I didn't mention earlier, but not everyone has what's called the exclusive form of a paraphilic disorder. In other words, let's take pedophilia as an easy example. In the non-exclusive form, the person does have some attraction to people their own age, but in addition to that, they have these intense recurrent sexual fantasies and urges about prepubescent children, but they do have the capacity to relate in that situation to someone their own age. In the exclusive form of a pedophilic disorder, the only attraction they experience is to children and not to adults, and so they really don't have that option. Now, the reason I brought it up in the context of this conversation, the person on Depolupron with a non-exclusive form of disorder, because they also are feeling some degree of attraction to an adult, could, even on the Lupron, still be sexual with that adult. It's much more difficult for the person who's only attracted sexually to children because, in effect, they're going to have to lead a celibate life. But what I've discovered in providing this treatment to people is that when you're hungry, you can't imagine that you're not going to want to eat. But when you're not hungry, you don't necessarily think about or miss eating. And so for some of our folks, at least, with the exclusive form of a pedophilic disorder, Although we would think it must be awful that now they're not having much of a sexual drive, they actually see it as a relief, and because they're not having much of a sexual appetite, they don't necessarily miss being sexual all that much. Uh, They still want companionship and friendship and and other activities in their lives, but they're they're still able to have it, even though the Lupron's enabling them to to not act in ways that would be problematic. Makes sense. I mean, we were all children at one point before puberty, and certainly somehow we filled our time without having any sexual drive. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when we're young and zero, and, and we, we can't imagine, I think most of us want to have a life without sex. But there are people that do, and if, if you're, the individual is comfortable with that, and they have other things that bring them meaning and joy in life, well, that's fine. And, and certainly, someone has a sexual attraction to children. They're not going to have sex if they're locked up in prison, so what's better is, okay, maybe I'm not going to be able to have sex, but at least I'll be a free person, and I can find meaning and and pleasure and satisfaction in life in other ways. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about the form. Can we talk a little bit about the process of initiating this, at least in general terms? Well, first of all, we want to get some baseline studies done. So Mm -hmm. we, we do a CBC, a complete metabolic panel, And most specifically, we do testosterone, FSH, and LH just to get a good baseline level. So those are baseline readings that we're going to get just to make sure someone's in in good health to see where their baseline is with testosterone and the pituitary uh, hormones. And then the other baseline test we take is of bone density. Just as women, when their hormones change at menopause, can have thinning of bones, osteoporosis, if someone stays on Lupron for a long time and we've, we've altered their hormone profile, uh, they can be at increased risk of getting osteoporosis. So we, we do that as a baseline. And then we repeat all of these tests on a yearly basis. And we could probably wait for two years, but we usually do it every year. And if they have developed osteopenia or osteoporosis, it doesn't mean we have to stop the, the Lupron, but we may have to start Frosimax or provide some other treatment to, to make sure they maintain a good bone health. Uh, okay. But the point is that we want to do this in a medically 
safe and responsible fashion is not just a matter of you go out and you, you put someone on the medicine and, and you don't keep track of what, how they're doing in terms of their general health. That monitoring is critically important. I know, I mean, I had experience ordering those labs and this is all useful information because right. I imagine people without the specific section gender clinic experience have never gone through this process. And you mentioned that we give a short-term suppressant of testosterone yeah, to counteract was a, the initial a trend surge. in elevation in testosterone, and then it comes down and stays down. So what we use there is uh, glutamide, 250 milligrams POTID, three times a day for 14 days only. The flutamide is a testosterone receptor blocking agent, and so it blocks the testosterone receptors and protects the person from having an increase in sexual drive during that transient elevation of testosterone, once the testosterone comes down, they no longer need the flutamide. Some of the physicians thinking it through might say, well, why don't you just leave them on flutamide indefinitely? It blocks testosterone receptors. Uh, the answer there is if you give flutamide chronically, it runs the risk of some pretty serious liver toxicity. So it's safe to give it short run to pre uh, protect against that transient elevation but it's a lot more risky to give it long-term, which is why we uh, use the Lupron long-term and don't stay with the flutamide. Okay. And I didn't give you the dose. I guess I can do that. The standard dose for the Lupron is 7.5 milligrams intramuscularly once per month, and that's a pretty much uh, what is often used for treating men with advanced prostate cancer where the cancer grows more slowly by suppressing testosterone. So I mention that because it has a pretty good health record, safety record, record, often in people who are more elderly with more significant health problems. So we do have some pretty good evidence that although we're using Lupron for an off-label indication here, which we often do psychiatrically with mm -hmm. medications, so there's evidence out there that has a pretty good track record in terms of safety. Oh, that's good to know. Presumably a, a population of people who are already contending with prostate cancer are going to have a higher number of comorbidities by a long margin. Yeah, I might add in terms of the Lupron, you know, some physicians are, you know, hesitant because of the connotations of what's been labeled, quote, chemical castration. I purposely don't use that label. We're not removing the testes. This is not an irreversible procedure. It wouldn't prevent someone in the future from fathering a child. So I just talk about it as a sexual appetite suppressant. And in reality, I don't think it's any more or less dangerous than many of the medications that we prescribe psychiatrically. We do worry about weight gain. That's true with most of the psychiatric medicines we give. And not to trivialize that, weight gain can be associated with hypertension. Hypertension can lead to all sorts of other problems. So we try to, we do weigh our patients periodically. We, we try to caution them about healthy eating about getting good exercise, but the concern about bone density and the concerns about weight loss and, and associated medical issues are the main ones with the Lupron. There are some nuisance side effects, just like many women when they go through menopause get hot flashes, cold sweats. Initially with the Lupron, when the hormone levels are changing, men may experience that. We, we tell them ahead of time that it's a, a nuisance, it can be uncomfortable, but it's not dangerous, and we encourage people to read up. We actually have a consent form, which you're not required to have, but which we provide to people who are going to be taking Lupron, just because it's something that there's often so much emotion tied to it, to make sure they're fully educated, and we encourage them, if they're concerned that they're having any issues related to it, uh, to discuss it with us, as we would with any other medication that we prescribe psychiatrically. It sounds like this would be a really emotionally heavy moment for a patient and family to take a step like that so I can yeah, see where that would be helpful. It is, but again, I don't want to make it seem so unique. I mean, we have medicines that we use for 
schizophrenia that can significantly lower the white blood count. We have medicines that can change the cardiac rhythm and so on. As with anything else, we have medicines that are more or less safe, and it's always a matter of risk-benefit ratio. So I think the, the major reluctance in treatment in this area is just that people aren't familiar with it. I think mm -hmm. once people become educated, they meet these patients, they see them as human beings, they're more comfortable about the medications. It just becomes a part of a psychiatric practice that uh, once you're properly educated and have had some experience, isn't all that much different than, than many other areas of psychiatry. Another one issue is with the people whose paraphilias can impact the safety of others. Uh, in caring for our patients, we do make sure certain that we never lose track of the fact that we have a responsibility not only to them, which we do, but to the community as well. Is there any ability to predict who's going to be a better candidate for Lupron? You know, the overwhelming majority of people who are on Lupron, I mean, there isn't any doubt it's going to dramatically lower their testosterone. And I've really, you know, it can always be an exception, but I'm hard-pressed to think of anyone who's been on an adequate dose of Lupron has gotten back into difficulty. Certainly early on when this medication was made available, it was actually Depo-Provera in the beginning, there were numbers of people that stopped it, and of course their testosterone comes back up, and some of those folks got back into difficulties. But Lupron, if you're taking it the way you're supposed to take it, the risk of engaging in dangerous sexual behaviors, and certainly in my experience and in some of the, in most of the published literature, is very, very low. Now, your question was really sort of determining who should get it. And the rule in medicine is always to use the least invasive methods necessary to achieve the therapeutic goal. So it's not something we immediately think is going to be necessary for everybody who has a, a paraphilia. But certainly if as a person is expressing concern that they may, they're not confident they can control their behaviors, it seems very compulsive. If the behavior is potentially dangerous to others, certainly if it's someone who's failed other treatments, so we hope to get people before that's happened, those would be some of the folks where we'll be strongly recommending the, the Lupron. We'd be much less likely to recommend it for someone, for example, who had a, a transvestitic disorder, someone who's cross-dressing. Now, that's assuming that they're content and wanting uh, to continue doing that. But again, sometimes that's interfering with relationships. They really themselves would prefer not to be behaving in that fashion. They're requesting the Lupron to see whether or not it's making their life easier. We can provide it. But, but certainly where we're most interested is where we're worried that someone will lose control or where we're worried that if they don't get successful treatment, harm can come either to someone else or to themselves. Are there any significant contraindications that you'd have? We want to make sure we know what other medicines people are on. But one of the good things about the Lupron is that there's no absolute contraindication. Like, you know, if somebody already is starting out with some pretty serious osteoporosis, that, that can be a concern. But most of our people are, are younger. They're not in that older age where that starts to become an issue. And even that isn't an absolute contraindication, but it would suggest that if they've already got that as a pre-existing condition, if you're going to start to loop on you, better also start a medication such as Fosamex that's geared towards improving their overall bone health. And how long does it take for patients to notice the effects of the Lupron? Well, some patients can notice it pretty quickly, but that's unusual. Again, it's a depot medicine, so it doesn't even, even with the first injection, it's not fully absorbed until near the end of that 30-day period. But the more direct answer to your question is for most people to experience the full impact of the medicine, it usually is, is four to six months. Now, that's actually interesting because the testosterone level will come down much more quickly than that 
but some patients don't notice the, the difference subjectively until that four to six month interval. And huh. the reason I find that's interesting is the same thing can occur in some cases with a castrated animal. In other words, in most castrated animals, the testosterone level will drop precipitously fairly quickly. But interestingly, in a small percentage of them, before you see a change in sexually motivated behavior, it may take a number of weeks or even a number of months. So we don't quite understand why there's a lag between the testosterone level coming way down and, and the change in, in humans in their mental experience and the change in animals in their behavior. Hmm. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that you don't necessarily get that optimal effect in some cases until four to five months out. Interesting. Okay, so that's good to know for expectation setting. Yeah, exactly. And again, we want people to be extremely vigilant, you know, during that time period. They should be vigilant overall anyway, but yeah. that they need to understand that's still a vulnerable period before the medicine takes full effect. Okay. The issue of people on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. uh, we are finding now that people with autism, you know, they have problems in social relationships and, and reading social cues and so on. Often they're more comfortable with things like computers than in actual interactions with, with human beings. And so even without having a paraphilia, they, they may need some sort of counseling and, and, and assistance in, in developing uh, uh, interpersonal relationships, particularly ones that might lead to sexual intimacy. But what we're recognizing more recently is that beyond that, there does seem to be an increased prevalence of the paraphilias within the uh, folks who are on the autism spectrum. Why that's so, we, we don't know. Again, there's an increased prevalence of ADHD as people who are on that spectrum as well. So we're just beginning to learn more about that. Uh, but these are people that often need particular help because not only are they dealing with the paraphilia, they're dealing with the implications of their, their autism. And again, I've seen some of these uh, folks particularly get into trouble on the internet with child pornography because uh, in terms of their autism, they don't necessarily easily appreciate the distinction or the importance of distinguishing between a, a child and, and an adult because they're often more involved in internet activities than in actual interpersonal activities. They're just on there more. They, they can turn to that for sexual excitement and gratification and that puts them more at risk for those reasons. Interesting. Yeah, it will be interesting to see that whole story as it unfolds with further research. Some of that is going on. I actually wrote a chapter book that's looking at autism and uh, some of these issues, but there, there's certainly a need for much more. I think that's an area where we will see much more research in the next uh, several years. Okay. Well, we'll stay tuned then. And the last piece with respect to Lupron, is there any reason that one could not initiate a Lupron trial again if someone is lost to follow-up or for whatever reason doesn't respond as expected the first time? Is there any limit to the number of times you can try and start it? You mean stopping and starting again? Is that the question? Yes. I mean, not yeah. intending to, of course, but just knowing that people sometimes are lost to follow up or discontinue for whatever reason. Oh, no, it, it can be started. And by the way, I mean, I've had patients where I've known them for years. I, uh, I trust them. They've been on Lupron for years where we've tried to see if they can be successfully tapered off. More often than not, they may even get off, but in a matter of time, they start to notice that their urges are coming back. They're worried about whether they'll control themselves. And I'm thinking in particular of a couple of patients right now who, who tried to come off of it and decided themselves that they couldn't and shouldn't and went back on it. So uh, in general, the first rule in, is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So most of the people that are doing well on, on Lupron and, and there's no adverse side effects and they're satisfied with how things are going, we, 
we leave them on it. We tell them this is more like insulin for diabetes than it is like penicillin for an infection. But, you know, that's a guideline, and there can be times where we try to see if we can taper it off with the understanding if it doesn't work, we'll pick it up again. And in terms of your question, if someone was lost to follow up, they were on it, there's reason now to feel they should be on it again. There's absolutely no contraindication. In fact, I would suggest that they, that really ought to be started up again. If there was a need for it in the beginning, there's probably still that need. Well, Dr. Berlin, I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to speak with me, and I hope that our listeners are going to find this information as interesting as I have and as many of my colleagues have. Is there anything else that you would like to make sure we say on the matter? I want people to understand that the children don't sit down and decide what they're going to be turned on by sexually when they get older, they discover it. So I, I want them to understand this is not someone choosing to be different. They're, they're discovering that. I want them to understand the driven nature. I want to understand there's treatments available. I want them to understand the importance of reaching out more and getting prevention. So I, I'm just thinking out loud here. But I think we've covered the, the things that, that are most important. And certainly if you get questions as follow up to this podcast and would like me to respond further, I'll be happy as we go along to do that. Okay, excellent. I will take you up on that. But thank you very much. And Well, thank you. I appreciate your uh, interest in my work. I appreciate your taking the time to do this. And like you, I hope that the listeners will have learned something that will serve the, a useful purpose. Yeah. I mean, frankly, if this information gets out to one person who is trying to prevent harm from a paraphilia, then this is time well spent in my mind. Well, I would agree with that. Well, I will okay. see you in the future. All right. Sounds good. See you down the road. Thanks for joining us today for our informative look at paraphilias. During the episode, we mentioned safersociety.org. If you or a loved one either struggles with these thoughts or been exposed to any of these kinds of traumas, we recommend checking out their website and reaching out to your doctor for help. We hope you'll join us next week as Kavita talks about sexually transmitted diseases with Dr. Khalil Ghanem. Until then, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or send us an email at againstdisease at gmail.com. Hope to see you soon.